Good evening. Welcome back to Driving Theology. It's another cold but sunny uh, sunset on... uh, What day is this? This is February 3rd, which is a somewhat of a traditional national uh, holiday in Japan. It's a traditional holiday. It's not really a national holiday. Nobody's... Nobody's off of work or anything like that. That's my cold belts squeaking again. Ah, can't get them turned off. Alright, I'll kick you in a second. Uh, yeah, so today's February 3rd and it is, uh, the holiday is Setsubun. Uh, Setsubun, and I don't even know what that means uh, in English. I, I, I don't even know the direct translation of that Japanese uh, name for the for the holiday, but Setsubun uh, is all about uh, out with the bad spirits, trying to expel bad spirits from your home, or from your workplace, or from your school. So generally, uh, generally, it's done by kids at home, but some institutions might partake in it. For example, uh, the kindergarten where I go to does something for Setsubun every year. Uh, what they do is to to uh, expel the bad spirits. They have some of the teachers dress up with masks, and these masks are demon masks. coming through the tunnel. So these masks are demon masks, uh, and the teachers, or one or two of the teachers, dress up like that, and when the teacher enters the room, the kids pelt them with uh, roasted soybeans. They they roast soybeans, um, and then they throw them. They call it mame, mame maki. So they throw the beans at the demon, or the teacher dressed as a demon. And they say, Oni wa soto, and basically it becomes an all-out war of throwing beans at the teachers from these little kids. And it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. Uh, And these little roasted soybeans are actually pretty hard. I mean, they're hard enough to be crunchy. They're roasted to that point. They're completely, uh, uh, completely dried out. Uh, and so the kids are yelling Oniwa Soto, which means uh, demons get out or demons demons belong outside kind of thing. And so it's all about, you know, really today it's all in good fun. I don't think anybody would claim that it's a particularly uh, religious holiday in Japan, but obviously it has religious roots um, or ha- had religious roots at some point. Uh, and so that was that. That was today. The, the kindergarten where I work actually did it yesterday, so I missed it this time. Uh, but it's 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 kind of disturbing and and kind of fun at the same time. I, <laughs> you know, living living in a a largely uh, I suppose pagan, even atheist country. And, 
can't you can't define the Japanese people with uh, American monikers because they're not really true atheists by and large, and they're not really religious as Christians are. You know, it's a completely different thing. I, I don't even know what to call it. Um, mostly, it's it's about luck. If you have bad luck, you can do certain things to get rid of it. Uh, and hopefully then you get good luck. And that might uh, mean going to a temple and praying for good luck for the year. Uh, that might be doing something like this, you know, uh, chasing the demons away from your house. Um, all kinds of traditions. And actually the uh, American tradition of Halloween is really quite similar uh, whereas once a year, the ancestors would return, uh, home, and the idea was to, to keep them away, which is why the, um, uh, pumpkins were carved with scary faces, right, or the, the vegetables, I think. Once it came to America, we, we Americanized it with the American pumpkin. But I think originally it was other vegetables were carved to scare away the evil spirits. And so really, we all have we all have this in our background somewhere. You know, something about um, doing doing certain religious things in order to attain good luck, good health, uh, prosperity, uh, whatever uh, your heart desires. Now the question is, do some Christians uh, have the same feeling? Do they think that in participating in certain religious rituals and doing certain good deeds, do they feel like they are uh, setting themselves up for favor, favor from, from God? Um, and I'd, I'd have to say yes. I'd have to say almost every Christian has been through this or had this thought uh, or wondered. Um, and, and, okay, I won't talk for everybody. I'll talk for myself. Even though I know, I know it's not true, I know that, that when something bad happens, human nature is to try to find a cause or someone to blame. And, you know, we, we may find someone outside to blame. That's possible. But... More often than not, we'll, we'll be harder on ourselves and we'll try to find some reason uh, why we have fallen out of favor with God, why this calamity has come upon us, for example. Um, and so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll say, well, you know, man, I should have gone to church last week or, you know, I, I know I should have done this or that good deed and, and now I haven't and, and so God is mad at me and he's allowed this or that calamity, uh, large or small, to uh, befall me. Um, now, of course, this is not true. Um, it's not true, but it's so easy to fall back into. It's so easy to, to believe this because I really think it's human nature. It's karma. It's really the law of karma. And karma is a law, I believe, that governs nature. Um you know, and, and you, you can see it in humans, uh, the whole idea of retribution, revenge, and, and vengeance. Uh, the, these 
these ideas are all about you did something to me so I'm gonna do something to you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and this is karma this is basically uh, the concept of karma what goes around comes around we say right uh, and it's not that it's untrue the problem with this concept as it pertains to Christianity is that this is not how our, our God works this is not how Jesus lived and taught uh, he did not believe in what comes around goes around and that's why he, he taught specifically in uh, I believe it's the Sermon on the Mount where he said you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and of course that was written in the law uh, in the Old Testament an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth But he says, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I may be combining a few scriptures. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things I try to adhere to when doing this podcast is, number one, I should be driving. Number two, I, I shouldn't have any notes or have prepared anything specific. It should, it should come from uh, just from my heart, and, and I've tried to do that. And so... I have not memorized great, um, you know, sections of scripture, uh, and so I, I may mix up things a little bit in my delivery. But uh, I think you'll get the gist. So Jesus was specifically saying that his way and the way of God is not the way of karma. Okay, it's not the way of karma. What goes around does not come around. Right, uh, he said, "Never, never repay uh, evil for evil, but repay evil with good. Repay evil with good." Uh, and so, just the opposite is true, and that is, though we have sinned, are and are sinful beings, because of Jesus, we are. Uh, receiving payment for the debts of sin that we have incurred. You know, sin is a sin is a, a bad thing still yet. Of course, I mean it's 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 what separates us from God: sin and willfulness and selfishness. And, um, but Jesus's death on the cross and through His blood, He paid for. All of that. So we we have we have taken out massive loans, and yet Jesus has paid them all in full for us, and that cancels out the law of karma. Uh, and so most of the world, and I would say even even the Christian world by and large, still operates on the idea of karma, whether they whether they intellectually believe it or not the way we live the way we act shows that we still believe in karma uh, and it's something that's very hard to shake it's very difficult it's been very difficult for me you know intellectually I, I know that um, that Jesus has paid it all he's taken care of my sin that, that I have no outstanding debts uh, with him in that department uh, and yet, 
Sometimes. I catch myself thinking, if I just did more good things, or, uh, you know, if, if I prayed more, if I just read my Bible more, or did more evangelism, if I just did these things, I would have more favor, and perhaps uh, God would, would bless me with, with uh, you know, riches, or better relationships, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but intellectually, we know that that's not the case. We know that by definition, a disciple of Jesus is someone for whom Jesus has paid their debts, uh, has accepted them uh, unconditionally. Uh, which brings me to a uh, topic. Uh, it, it's a little bit related and it's a little bit not, but it it touches on the, the very nature of Trinity of God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, and it it was this is a recent thing that I have learned, and and the more I think about it, the more I pray about it and think on it, the more I believe that that it is true. And this is the you know it starts with the difference between control and in charge of. To be in control of, and to be in charge of. You know, we've often heard when bad things happen, whether it's an illness, uh, an unexpected death, uh, or you know, sudden financial collapse. Uh, we've often said or heard it said to people, "Don't worry, God is in control. God is in control." And on the surface, it doesn't really sound like a very bad thing to say. God is in control. Uh, and certainly, on some level, we can assert that, that, yes, indeed, God is in control on one level. But if we say that God is in control, uh, when a good person has something bad happen to them, How does that play out? You know, or, okay, so if God is control, and, and most people believe God to be all-powerful, all-knowing, right? Uh, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and yet he caused the tsunami of March 11th, uh, 2011, to happen, and consequently, the deaths of some 18,000 people. Uh, how does that play out? God's in control of that? You know, it's never sat well with me that, that we could say God is in control. Can you say God was in control when uh, Hitler and the Nazis killed, you know, the 6,000 Jews? Could you say God was in control of... of uh, Genghis Khan when he killed 60 million people in his battles and wars? Uh, do you say God is in control of the person who goes to the local convenience store and, and shoots the man behind the counter? So here's the thing. And this comes from a more Christ-like God. I know I've mentioned that book a few times. Uh, here's the thing. God he asserts, Jerozak asserts, 
God is not in control. And why is God not in control? Because God doesn't do control, he says. God doesn't do control. That's not how God operates. God doesn't do control. All right, so just chew on that for a second. God is not the kind of God. It is not in his character to be controlling. All right, now let's 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 talk about the the definition of the words a little bit. And th- th- these are just my working definitions. These are not official. In control, uh, right right now, as as I'm driving down this road, I am in control of this car. If I pull the steering wheel to the right, the car will turn to the right. Uh, I just did it. <laughs> and if I pull it to the left, it will turn to the left. I am in control of this car. By and large. Now, I'm not in control of all the other drivers on the road, and I'm not in control of the road conditions. And so anything could happen at any time to where I will lose control of this vehicle based upon the environmental factors uh, that exist around me. But by and large, I am in control of this car. When I will it to do something, I know how to make it do it, and it will do it, and it will not resist me. Unless, again, there's something that has arrested that control, that's taken that control away from me, like an engine malfunction, uh, or something like that. Okay, but let's, let's take it to the human level. Are humans ever in control of other humans? Okay? Now... There's two, two parts of this. We have the body, right? Can, can a human be in control of another's body? And then you have the, the mind. Can we control someone's mind to the point where, uh, to the point where their body will follow whatever we tell their minds to? Now we've heard, of course, the terms mind control. Uh, but we know this to be a, a, a very invasive uh, type of a thing where either psychologically we recondition someone's mind, uh, basically empty the mind of itself to where it's pliable and submissive, or you know some use of, I, I don't even know if this is true, so if, if you are a doctor out there I don't know that there are any drugs that will give you mind control, but there may be, you know, lots of movies, there are lots of movies that talk about uh, controlling the mind through drugs, medication, or even surgery or shock treatments, things like this. That's mind control. Uh, and the, the whole reason you want to control someone's mind, presumably, is so that you can control their body, that you can make them do and make them be tools and followers of your will. That's control. Now, as far as the physical goes, you know, to some extent, I can control a person who's weaker than me. Uh, I, I can, you know, a, a baby, for example. Whether a baby wants to go in the next room or not, I am physically able to pick them up and to move them to another room despite their own will. You know, whether they will it or not, I can... I can make a baby uh, um, defer or obey my will. Defer to obey my will. Uh, but generally, 
relationships outside of adult child relationships don't work that way there there really are no controlling relationships that I know of not truly controlling uh, and, and I think you know it's a small difference but I, I think if you'll bear with me we're gonna see that this making a difference between controlling and being in charge of will bring out an amazing aspect of the the heart and the mind of our maker so what's the difference between controlling and being in charge now uh, let's say that uh, I'm a boss I'm a foreman and I'm uh, uh, a foreman over uh, carpenters and we're building a house uh, my job is to make sure that uh, the other men have the tools they need, know how to use the tools, know the plan, and are able to do the various jobs of building the house, whether that be laying the foundation, doing the framing, uh, putting on the roof, drywalling, things like this. Now, if I want a certain worker to do what I want them to, to, to obey my will, I have to tell them, right? There's this process. Uh, for example, if I need someone to cut me uh, 20 two by fours that are three meters long, I, I have to call the guy, he comes over and I say, hey, I need you to cut me 20 two by fours, uh, three meters long. And there will be a response, okay? There will, there will be a response. Either he will agree to do that uh, he might put it off or he may reject it. But he is able to, using his own will, make his own choice. Now, his choice may have consequences. For example, if he refuses, uh, he may get fired. But still, even though I am in charge of him, I am not in control of him. And there must be consent. Okay? Uh, in every relationship, for one person to obey the will of another, they must consent. Okay, there has to be consent. Uh, and I would say, by and large, this is uh, the way that everything works. Now, we might look at some consequences to disobedience as so grave as to define the relationship as controlling. You know, in the case of uh, slavery, um, human trafficking, or you know, blackmail or, or whatever this be, uh, in those cases, the, the consequences given to us for disobeying someone are so grave that we may feel we have no choice. And that's a, you know, that's a very real thing. It happens, you know, you've got the, the single mother who has to work the three jobs and she does that uh, because her kids need to eat, or her kids need clothes, or education, or a place to live, and so she sacrifices greatly for the well-being and welfare of her children, uh, to the point where she would might say she has no con control over that. She she has to do it. There's there's no choice, right? 
But I think if we look closely, we'll, we'll even see that there, there is the opportunity for your will to consent in all of those situations, somewhat. Now, again, the consequences may may merit the, the, the label of, you know, a controlling situation. Uh, but I, I think that's definitely not the norm. I would say that is a very small percentage of how most relationships work. And they should not work. I think we would all agree that no relationship should work that way. No person should ever be the slave of another. We, we have, as a, as, a, as a human race, we have gone beyond, by and large, the uh, condoning slavery. We don't condone it. We, we do not uh, put people under that yoke anymore. We don't believe it. Now, of course, it happens sometimes, but as a, as a people, we are appalled by it. And no one would want their family members to be slaves uh, of that sort. So, in being in charge of people, you still must must get their consent for them to obey your will. Uh, so here's the thing. Let's go back. Let's go back to God. Is God controlling? Is God controlling? Well, I believe that the, the nature of God and the character of God is known best in Jesus. That, that looking at Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospels and throughout Scripture, uh, I think we would find that Jesus was not controlling. He... In everything he did, he was in charge of his disciples. Uh, I think we would say for sure that he is—he was in charge of bringing the kingdom to the earth. Of course, he's in charge of that. There's no question. That was his job. And Jesus said, "All authority, all authority, is given to him in heaven and on earth." that Jesus has all authority uh, and he had great responsibility for what he was uh, working to accomplish. And yet, the relationships that he had with his disciples, I think could best be described as familial, friendly, brotherly, you know, pleading, not, not ordering, and really not much commanding, even though he has every right to command. Uh, his commands were about as gentle as a command can be. You know, he said, a new command I give you, to love one another. Well, that's not, you know, that's a much, much of a command. And the, the consequences were not laid out either. You know, when you have a controlling relationship, which I think we just showed that there really aren't any, but let's say, for argument's sake, there was, I think... A controlling relationship would always uh, have the consequences of disobedience tied in with the command. For example, somebody who's trying to control another person, we get the, the word or else a lot. You know, you know, you, you clean up that room or else. 
and usually that or else means there will be swift punishment right on the tail of your disobedience. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. I use that as a dad. You know, there will be swift punishment on the tail of your disobedience. Uh, <laughs> so, um, a relationship that leans toward the controlling side is always talking about consequences in conjunction with the command given. Uh, consequences for disobedience. Um, now Jesus did talk about consequences, you know, natural consequences. Um, he he, but but his his form was not controlling. It was it was pleading and urging and teaching and, and patiently uh, trying to influence and gain the consent of his disciples through through knowledge and trust and faith. No one need uh, disobey someone he trusts. If you trust somebody, if you really trust them, you will do whatever they tell you, knowing that they are they are they are asking you to do that with your best interest at heart. Uh, and the disciples trusted Jesus, even though they didn't truly understand him, they trusted him. Uh, and certainly, uh, the trust is shown in the fact that most of the original disciples went to their death proclaiming Jesus Lord and not recanting their confession. Uh, they went to death believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Uh, they died consenting uh, to the way of Jesus, uh, to the way of the kingdom. So we need to stop I believe looking at Jesus as a control, uh, looking at God or Jesus as as controlling. He's not controlling. He pleads with us for our own good to listen and to obey His gentlest of commands. And here's the thing: even we disobey, He has paid the consequences. The consequences of our disobedience have been paid by Jesus on the cross. I mean. That's not controlling. That's not controlling at all. Jesus says, follow me, live by my life, obey my commands, because I have forgiven you. That's really different than saying, obey my commands, and if you do, I will forgive you. That's a completely different Lord there. Okay? That's a completely different word. Jesus is, is the best of all possible lords. Uh, he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and yet he doesn't act like your normal lord or normal king. He doesn't try to control us or manipulate us. He pleads with us. He begs even for us to follow his way for our own benefit. And he says, do it because I have died for you. Do it because I have forgiven your sins. 
right? So consenting, we obey Jesus. He doesn't try to control us. Alright, well, we haven't really talked about natural disasters too much. We, 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 we hit on them, but surely you can agree that there is a lot of discomfort in saying that God is in control of all of these calamities that, ha- that happened. I, th- I, think, I think he's decidedly not in control. He is decidedly not in control. Because, again, he doesn't do control. Jesus from the beginning, God from the beginning, wanted to partner with us. And we see this in Genesis. Uh, God makes the entire world. He makes man. He makes woman. He says, uh, you know, come into the garden and subdue it. Right? Subdue it. Uh, Be Lord. You know, humans are, are given lordship of the earth in the garden. Now, we lost it when we consented with Satan and disobeyed God in the garden. We lost it. But in the beginning, God gave us dominion over the earth. Now, we don't have it now. Satan has it. Uh, But slowly, the kingdom is taking back that ground. The kingdom of God is advancing. And battle by battle, victory by victory, Jesus and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, are reclaiming the lost territory. And one day that lost territory will extend to the entire earth. Uh, If God were in control, if he were a controlling God, he would just do it in a flash. But that's just not who he is. He is a God who empties himself. And this is where Jerzak talks about the kenosis of God. Uh, another Greek word that means self-emptying. He is a, he is a canonic God. Uh, he is a cruciform God. In other words, the cross uh, and, and what he did to himself and allowed to be done to himself on the cross for our benefit shows that he is a cruciform God. He is, he is cross-shaped. He is, he is sacrificial. And so the kind of king that Jesus is, is an upside-down king. He puts himself on the bottom of an upside-down pyramid that grows as it goes higher. He puts himself in the position of a slave to the entire world. It is his job to clean up our messes. And he gladly has taken that job. It is his job to pay our debts. And he's done that, paid in full. It is his job to show us how to serve by washing the feet of the apostles, by feeding the multitudes, by healing the sick, by raising the dead. What a Lord! Don't think that Jesus is a king in the way that we look at powerful kings on earth. All of his power is contained in the heart of a servant. We call him king of kings. He's really 
a servant of servants. And therein lies his authority. What a Lord. about that the next time you're, you're comforting somebody when, when you're, you're, you're tempted to say uh, don't worry God is in control God doesn't do control And it's shown that God doesn't do control and that he allowed sin to be a wedge between he and us. He allowed that to happen because that was our choice. We chose, we chose to sin. We chose to disobey God. Uh, we chose to follow Satan uh, as opposed to following the Lord. And he allowed it. He consented. Uh, and even in his consent, even though he allowed us to walk away from him, he provided and began uh, his plan to redeem us, to buy us back, to win us back, to make it all okay. Even in our disobedience, he consented to, uh, to let us all come back. And that was his plan from the beginning. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite a God. That is quite a Lord. I think we can all agree. Um, yeah, so I, I think I'll close it there. I, I, I would love comments. I know not many people listen to this. Maybe at some point they will. Uh, but be thinking about that. If God is not in control, would we even want him to be? Uh, and if, if you think he is in control, please uh, feel free to, to leave uh, a message or some uh, evidence of that idea that God is in control. Uh, I think you could, you could make an argument that God is in control in the sense that his purpose will be done on the earth. That what he has purposed for the earth uh, and for mankind will happen. And I think in that sense, uh, you might have a bit of an argument that God is in control on a macro level. But on a micro level, I, I really think we need to, we need to rethink all there's a lot of room for us to rethink all that. Uh, all right. Well, everybody, uh, stay warm during this winter if you're in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. God bless you all. And uh, remember, uh, Jesus is preeminent in everything.